Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to the second episode of Winning Strategies Playbook. Our guests last week were incredible, and we got another one this week, Vincent Hancock gold medaled in two Olympics, and then Ditton in his third. He tells the journey of starting off training for the Olympics at the age of 12 and gold medaling in two back-to-back Olympics, the only Olympian in skeet shooting to do back-to-back gold medals, and then he does it in his third. He tells this incredible journey of growing up and then the journey of becoming an athlete, but also learning internally about himself as a man as a father, and as a husband. He really opens up and shares that to be successful, sometimes you got to do some hurdles in order to get to where you're at. So we really appreciate you tuning in. And our small business of the week is Defender Outdoors Sporting Clay Ranch. We'll drop the, the address in there. I'm a fan of skeet shooting. I'm a fan of sporting clays. Naturally, with this episode, with Vincent Hancock being involved, go out there, get some lessons, learn how to shoot. It is a great sport. Vincent Hancock. How are you doing, sir? I'm pretty good. How about yourself? Man, living the dream, (laughs) as always. Herding cats, juggling Molotov cocktails, living in chaos, which I love. That, that definitely sounds like Jeremy Spann all <laughs> over right there. <laughs> Man, I appreciate you coming on here uh, and just share some time and stories with us today. And uh, and so we want you know folks to get a a peek into what it's like to be an Olympian, not just any Olympian, but gold medalist. Olympian, back-to-back gold medals, world break, world record crushing. That's a, that's pretty impressive. Uh, it's just all in a day's work, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's your Tuesday, right? Uh, that's that's what my day-to-day has been since I was almost twelve years old. Uh, wow. So, I and mean, I've been living it my entire life, pretty much. Is that when you started shooting? Was twelve? That's what. That's when I found the Olympic discipline of shooting. So okay. I actually started shooting when I was 10, but I mean, I remember my mom has photos of me in a, a baby carriage back behind the shooting line and my dad's competing uh, at the Southern Grand or you know, different different matches in Florida or Georgia. And it's, I don't remember any of that kind of stuff because I was a baby, but you know, my, it's been, shooting is in my family. It's been there since my grandfather. So my father-in-law had dinner with him last night. Just tell him I'm doing this podcast. He says, you have to do a joke. So I got a joke for you. Okay. All right. And this one's really fitting for you. Why did the bullet end up losing his job? Hmm. I would have said probably operator malfunction, but what do you, what is it? <laughs> he was fired. Ah, okay. That's a dad joke and a half right there. I like it. Oh, man. It it was funny. (laughs) These, you know, I I was like, I'm going to absolutely do clean jokes. Mainly because, again, like we were talking outside, I like surprising people. Mm -hmm. Everybody expects like, oh, Span's going to do a joke. Yep. There's going to be a 
dirty punchline to it. <laughs> so I want to surprise them by giving good joking materials. You know, I figure if this podcast thing doesn't work, maybe stand up, stand maybe up, maybe not. Yep. <laughs> yep, definitely stand up. Yep. <laughs> so you're, you start learning how to shoot Olympic competition at mm-hmm. 12. Like what's the difference in that versus how you were shooting before? Uh, so there's a lot of different genres of shooting, okay. especially in shotgun shooting. Uh, yeah, there's different things, a lot of different things for rifle and pistol too. But obviously what I do is the shotgun side of things and clay yeah. targets. So everybody that, that's in the shooting world that, that's really shot clay targets, they know of skeet, trap, and probably sporting clays. The sporting clays is growing like crazy here. So the first time that I stepped foot on a range, I was with my dad or that I shot my first round of something. I was on a skeet field in Covington, Georgia, and then quickly progressed to sporting clays from there. And then we were at a a 4-H state shoot in, I think it was 2001. I wasn't old enough to shoot yet. These are 2000, 2001. Um, And this kid comes walking down the line, stopping at every tent and saying, hey, why don't you come up to Atlanta where they hold the, the 90s or where they held the 96 Olympic Games? And where they shoot the Olympic style of shooting. I'm like, I looked at my dad. I was like, are you telling me that there's, you didn't know that there was shooting in the Olympics? Like, seriously? I I have watched, I watched the torch run through my hometown. And my second grade teacher ran the torch through my hometown. I've been an Olympic lover ever since 96 and seeing that torch. So like, I've watched it. I've, I, I dreamed of, you know, one day, playing baseball as a professional athlete i was like i wanted to play in the olympics but all these other kinds of different things and then all of a sudden you're saying that okay shooting is an olympic sport so i go there american skeet and american trap are the american disciplines that were developed here in the u.s the targets are pretty slow uh, by by my standards Uh, they Mm -hmm. fly about 50 miles an hour roughly and they only go about 60 yards now, on a skeet field that you have a high house and a low house and the targets cross over a central point about 15 feet high and they travel 60 yards apiece. Trap, I think they travel like 54 yards. On international skeet, our targets are, it's the same skeet field, so same high house and low house, but our targets don't have as much of a dome. Now, the, the, the clay targets are circular and they're about this tall or so and the, the dome on it catches the air and it helps it to kind of you know, catch air and keep on going, travel a little bit further distance. On international, our targets are not this tall, they're about this tall. And our targets have to travel 68 meters, so over 70 yards to be able to get there. And you're thinking, okay, you know, extra 10 yards can't make that much of a difference. It makes a huge difference. Our targets are traveling in the mid to upper 60 miles per hour. And one of the probably the biggest differences outside of just the speed is if you're going to like the local gun club, Fort Worth Trap and Skeet, that's where I practice out of, but the normal guys that are just going out there and shooting, you're going to see them start with the gun up on their shoulder and their head is on the gun and they, they call for the target and they just move it and shoot. Well, in international, we're more so along the, the instinct based. So hunting, uh, that type of movement, we have to start with a gun down by our waist. And then when we call pull, Instead of the target immediately coming out and shooting it, we have a computer random generated time somewhere between zero and three seconds that the target's going to come out at after we call for the target. It's not consistent. It's not consistent at all. Everything is huh. everything is stacked against you. So our targets are faster. We have to start with the gun down 
We don't know when the target's coming out, and we have to shoot doubles on every single station or multiple doubles on one station versus on the American style, it, you're only shooting pairs on four stations, and it's the four easiest stations on the field. We're shooting it on seven stations, and on all the hard, the majority of our targets are actually on the hardest station on the whole field. So it's, like I said, everything is stacked against you, but it's the, it was the most challenging thing I had ever done, and that's why I ended up going towards it. And then, so now you start this training on the Olympic style of shooting, and then the military comes calling your name. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I started shooting the, just the first day I went to shoot in Atlanta. I, the first round I stepped out, I don't think I, I think I shot like a 23 out of 25. So it was pretty good. And then I didn't shoot anything less than a 21 that whole day. And on the drive back home, it was about an hour and 15 minute drive home. I looked at my parents and I'm like, this is easy. Like, we're, we're going to do this. I'm going to make the Olympic team faster than this. And then we come back the next day. I was on a Sunday. And I didn't, I don't think I shot anything above like a 15 or 16. And I'm like, man, this, this sucks. This is hard. <laughs> but I'm like, this is way harder than I thought it was going to be. But on the way home that night, I told my parents that I wanted to go to the Olympics and I wanted to win a gold medal. So about three months later, you know, my dad, uh, my dad was a, was a home builder and he built a skeet field in our backyard on our 10 acres that was sl- surrounded by pine trees. It's the only way we could make it work because the shot would have gone out on, I mean, we were basically shooting on like a three acre piece. That's not realistic for anywhere outside of, we had this freaking mountain of, of pine trees that. It was just so solid. You couldn't see through it. There was no light that made it to the ground pretty much. And that's the thing that saved us or we could shoot there every day. And so, I mean, I shot there. I had a a streak along the trees that was completely (laughs) bare of bark. It was actually turned orange. So if you ever think about, okay, if I go in and just whack at a pine tree, take all the bark off of it and shoot it a couple hundred thousand times, what's it going to look like? What's going to look exactly like a freaking clay target flying across (laughs) it. That's what it looks like. It turns orange. So I had one of the hardest places to, to train at. So whenever I went to competitions, it made it a little bit easier. And so fast forward a couple of years, uh, I had been shooting and, and then get to, get to 2005, I was 16. And I just went on a, on a tear. I won almost every match I competed at that year. Uh, I shot in seven international matches and got seven medals with four golds and three silvers. Wow. With world records... I think I either set or tie the world record like five or six times that year. So it was, I mean, it was a really, really good year, really good year. Um, and that obviously caught the, the army's eye because the army marksmanship unit was founded back in 1990 or 1956 by Dwight Eisenhower with, this is not what they're going to tell you, but this is what we actually get told once we were there in the unit. It was set up to beat the Russians in the Olympics because we couldn't beat them right. uh, leading up to that. And so once that got there, they've, they've won so many Olympic medals. It's, it's ridiculous now. But once I started beating them, they're like, okay, well, we can't have this one kid beating us all the time. So let's, <laughs> let's see if he'll join us. <laughs> and so, you know, it, it was obviously a, a good, good look for me. Like, okay, I have these guys recruiting me. I'm 16 years old. Now, obviously they want me pretty bad. And so what are my options? Oh, do I... I'm going to graduate in 2007, so the year before the Olympic team. I can either go to college 
which I'd had some scholarship offers, but it wasn't much of anything. And it was mostly northern schools that had teams that offered those scholarships. So I'm not going to get to shoot as much as I want to. It's going to be cold. I hate cold weather with a passion. And I'm going to be away from, from doing what I need to do and being away from my family and you know the kind of the base that helped me get to where I am. Or I could stay home and let my parents pay for a local school and then pay for all my, all my training, all my travel, everything else, which they, at that point in time, it was, they weren't making a ton of money. So they'd already spent over half a million dollars on all my stuff over the course of the last, you know, six years that I'd been doing it. I couldn't realistically ask them to, to keep doing that. And especially what it's going to cost during the Olympic year and the year prior was just an astronomical amount for them. Yeah. Or my other option was join the army and shoot for the marksmanship unit. So that's what I ended up deciding to do. Cause I mean, I, I couldn't, I couldn't live with myself if I put that much financial burden on my parents. And I knew that I probably wasn't going to be able to attain the goal that I wanted to achieve if I had gone to one of those colleges that offered me a, an opportunity to shoot for them. So in order to make that happen to where I could make the 08 team, I had to join the army between my junior and senior year of high school. So I went through basic training. Uh, I think it was like three or four days after my junior year of high school finished. And I shipped out June 1st. Uh, I believe I started like June 6th or maybe it was actually later. We got delayed a little bit. I missed the first cycle. They put us in another one. There's so many people there trying to get in. It was during the surge in 06. Mm. And so we started and we went through basic training, made it through, graduated August 19th of 2006 and missed my first week of, of senior year <laughs> in high school, but then came back. Uh, I, I finished, actually, it changed me a lot going through basic training. Now, it, it matured me a lot. It really made me focus on my school, made me realize just how good I had it at home and not having to be in charge of, of anything other than just doing what I needed to do. And so it progressed on through the, re the rest of that year. I ended up getting all A's for the first time in my high school career. You know, education actually meant something to me. And I was able to, to get back to the unit the summer of 2007 or get to the unit actually I didn't go to AIT yet. They, they delayed it so that way I could train all summer and prepare for the first Olympic selection match, which was in the fall of 2007. And so I trained, I shot the, the Pan American Games in 07 in Rio. That was my first major Olympic-like event because the Pan Am Games is essentially like an Olympic Games for the Western Hemisphere. And it's okay. always the year prior to the Olympics. So we shot that. I ended up winning that. I got in a sudden death shoot off at the very end with a good friend of mine, uh, another guy that was on the marksmanship unit with me, uh, a prior Olympic medalist. He was a bronze medalist in 2000 in Sydney. And so that felt good. I'm like, all right, you know, I just went to a, a pseudo Olympics and lived in a village, competed at a high level, won. Like, I can definitely do this then. And so got to the first Olympic selection match in the fall of 2007, won that. Barely. I had, a, I had a few target leads over second place. I shot well, but everybody else shot well too. And then I think it was either two or three days after I got back from fall selection, shipped out to AIT in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. And for Lost in the Woods, it's true. It's <laughs> really true. <laughs> Not a big fan of that place, honest, to be honest. 
but still better than but, the cold. Yes. No, no, no. I went during the winter. Oh, yeah. So oh, yeah. It, was, <laughs> it was, it really sucked because my, my first PT test, there was six inches of snow on the ground. Oh, no. Like, this is awful. <laughs> the next PT test, I think we had 12 inches of snow on the ground. So, like, I was, I was hating life, really and truly. And so, anyways, I get through my eight weeks or eight or nine weeks of, of AIT. Ship back to the unit. Uh, I've got my my own dorm room and everything like that, my own barracks room. And I'm living there for a few months. I ended up getting married a few months after that. Still young. My, my wife and I got married when we were 18. So 13 years in, or almost 13 years in, in, in going. So um, we had a lot of things happen in 2008. That was, we got married in June or January 2nd of 08. And then we bought our, our we didn't buy our first house till the end of the year. Sorry. Made the Olympic team in March of 08. I shot an absolutely terrible first day of that, that final selection. Well, let me go into that. I don't even want. I don't want to miss this. This one, yeah. I almost crap myself. <laughs> so the first di- the first selection match, I had a, like a three target lead. We go into the second selection match, and you carry over all the targets that you hit in the first selection to the next selection, and it's added together. So it's two hundred and fifty targets on the first one plus a final. Actually, they didn't count our finals. So two hundred fifty targets. You go to the next match is another 250 targets plus a final. Well, the first day of that second match, I shoot like a 91 out of 100, and the guy behind me shoots like a 98. So I go from being a three up to four down in one day. Wow. And so I'm panicking. Uh, but by the end of the day, I am just pissed. I'm like, no, this is not going to happen. So the next day I come out, I shoot a 99 out of 100, and he shoots an 88. So we go from, we just flip-flopped those next, those two days drastically. And so going into the last day, I've got a pretty good lead and then shoot good on the last day, so the last 50 targets, and then go into the final. And I can't remember exactly what I shot back then, but shot pretty good. I think I ended up winning by seven or eight targets over second place. And the, the only the top two get to go. Yeah, so obviously the whole goal is to, if you're in first, then you're not in, in danger of losing to third place because you're not in second. Right. So I want to be in the lead you know, as much as I can be and, and building that lead as much as possible too. So after the first day, I mean, I definitely went like that and puckered up a little bit. Yeah. And then thankfully I got my stuff back together again and, and shot a, a really good score the next day. Kind of put me back where I needed to be. And that was kind of what led me to, to getting to my first Olympics. And to be honest, it was harder to make the Olympic team than it was to go to the Olympics and shoot it because it was so drawn out. I mean, it's a six month process of trying to make the Olympic team. And you know, if you make the Olympic team, at least you're an Olympian for life. You know, the vast majority of people never get to never get to win, let alone medal. But just to get there means you're you're the top two of the entire country. And at that point in time, we have 36 athletes that were, were allowed to go from the entire or entire world. So you're two of 36 people in the world that get to compete in the Olympics. And I, I, was, I was happy with making the Olympic team. But obviously my goal was to, to get there and win a gold. And so I, I got there. I shot pretty good the rest of that year. I had one one World Cup, finishing fourth at the Olympic test event in Beijing in April of 08. And then we're competing in August of... Uh, I think my the, my last day of competition was August 16th of 2008. It is 96 or 98 degrees. It was an even number. 96 to 98 degrees outside. Zero wind. And in the 90 degree humidity mm-hmm. level. 
I am burning hot. I have, we actually have an ice vest that's hooked up to an ice cooler that's circulating ice water in it. And I've got three other ice packs that I'm trying to put all over my body. So I'm wearing this vest, pumping ice cold water throughout it. I've got one ice pack on the back of my neck, one on the top of my head, and one I'm just moving everywhere else. And I'm still sweating profusely. I just, I'm nervous like crazy. I'm going into my, going into the final in first place in Beijing. And I have to go and shoot a really good final because I have my head by one target. So over second place. And I know that I want to win. So if I shoot a perfect round, then I win. I'm guaranteed to win it. But if I miss one or if I miss two, then I could be going down and down and down and down. So I'm, I'm freaking nervous. I'm 19 and at the Olympics, the biggest stage. I'm the youngest person there competing. And we go out there and finally just take everything off. I'm like, it's not going to get any better. So let's just go shoot this thing. We're, we're shooting. I'm shooting really well. Get all the way over. Get past the hardest station, which is station four. Shoot station five over to station six. A little bit backstory before I get to station six. I had already missed three of my four targets out of the first 125 qualification on station six. So three out of my four, I've missed on six. I get to station six and I miss another one. So four now out of the five that I miss (laughs) over the Olympics is on one (laughs) station. I ended up finishing out the round, but the guy that was in second place shot a perfect 25. So now we're, we're tied and we have a sudden death shoot off. And now I'm really nervous. So we take about a 15 minute break and I'm trying to cool off. We go back out there and we go shoot. And I think I'm nervous. We shoot, we shoot the first pair. We both hit it. And then he's shooting first and he shoots the second pair and he misses one of the targets. I think it's the second target. And I remember stepping up and it was almost like an out of body experience that when I was stepping up onto the station, I knew that I was going to win. I knew that I was already going to hit the targets. I don't remember calling pull and I cannot tell you how I made the moves or anything. I just know that my body did it. And I broke both the targets. I turn around, raise my arms. And you know, that was, that was it. That was history. Uh, the, as far to my knowledge and, and everybody that's told me and the things that I've looked up, I'm the youngest male to ever win an Olympic gold medal in skeet shooting. That is, that's pretty, that's gotta be a, pretty cool feeling it was it was crazy uh, you don't really know what that feeling is yeah. i still to this day like i can picture i can visually mentally picture this right now of watching him miss the targets i'm standing behind him watching the targets and i remember getting up i remember seeing my hands and seeing my gun yeah. but then that's it i just remember and then i can remember seeing everything else happen shooting the first target hitting it shooting the second target hitting it and then turning around to ten thousand fans cheering and, and screaming and then I just get waylaid by a friend of mine that just won a gold medal two or three days prior. And it, it was just, it was incredible. It was an absolutely amazing feeling. So when he misses, you know that I've won this. Yep. For whatever reason, up, I'm going to step it. up. I'm going to do what I do. Yep. I just want it. And uh, so just so our audience kind of has some sort of idea, because I know this is not a cheap sport right yeah it's an expensive sport like you said how many rounds of ammo estimated do you go through in a year now is less than what it was then you know back in back before the first olympics Mm -hmm. Uh, and now i'm probably in the 20 to twenty-five thousand a year range but from the ages of about 12 13 to probably 19 there at the olympics i was probably shooting 
somewhere between seventy and eighty thousand rounds a year. That <laughs> was it was a lot. And just to give even more of a concept behind this, what is an average round cost of the shells that we shoot uh, nowadays? It's probably an average of about seven dollars a box. <laughs> So, twenty five in a box. Uh, twenty five right? in a box. Yeah. Oh man. So Talk we're looking about, about seventy dollars a case. Uh, it's two hundred and fifty targets. Yeah. I mean, it, it adds up pretty quickly. And then that's just for the shot that you shoot. And then you also have to pay for the clay target. Yeah. Which is about five dollars a, a, a round of clays on a cheaper end. Uh, the majority of places you go, that's another seven dollars for one box or one round of clays. So one practice round between shells and ammo not including the gun the glasses the vest the earplugs all that kind of stuff looking at 14 bucks a pop i'll never forget the first time you and i met we were at your house out there in trace vistas mm-hmm. and we you're showing me around the house and we walk out in the garage and all i see is this pallet full <laughs> of routes and i was like you shoot all those and I think jokingly you said something along the lines of that's a Tuesday or <laughs> 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 whatever what you said. And I just, I mean, the amount of just, not just the cost of it, but just seeing it visually of like, this is what we do mm-hmm. and thought, man, that's, that's a lot of patience. No, well, I mean, it's, there's a just, there's so much that goes into it. There mm-hmm. really is. Uh, it just as in any, anything really, if you want to be great at something, it takes an immense amount of dedication, time, and learning uh, to, to be able to get to where you want to be. Now, I, I know that I may be good at, at several things or, or many things, but I'm truly only great at one thing. And that's because I've spent my entire life per, trying to perfect that one thing. And it, it's not, to me, in my mind, when you're talking to Usain Bolt, or Michael Phelps. Yeah. You know, those guys that are, you know, are at the pinnacle of their sport. It's not cocky of them. It's not arrogant of them or supercilious of them to say, yeah, I, I am great at what I do. And it's because they know the amount of time and effort that they've put into it. You, know, you, one of the nice things is about shooting is I truly believe that you get out of the sport what you put into it. So if you put great effort and great time, great everything that you can, this whole gamut list of things that it takes to to accomplish something. If you do that on a great extraordinary level, then yes, you are great at this one thing. And that's that's kind of how I look at it. If I want to be great at something, then I, I dedicate myself. I've dedicated my life work to this. And so it's by no means a, a stretch of anything to say that, you know, I've, I consider myself great at my sport, but I love it. It's my passion. And that's what I should be. If I didn't feel like I was good at it or great at it, then I shouldn't be doing it. Man, in my opinion, you're great at six things, actually. <laughs> Naturally shooting. You're a great Christian. You're, you're one of the most devout guys I know. You're a great husband. You're a great father. You're a great friend. And number six is, you're a great client. <laughs> you should be saying oh, that, Oh, man, Jeremy. I'm telling you, <laughs> hey, it is, if there's anything I love is when I get a call from Vincent Hancock that says, I'm ready to buy another house. And you, and it's always funny, Laura and I were talking about this, you know, because you'll go, you and Rebecca would be like, oh, man, you know, we're sorry for, you know, this is, we changed our mind, this and that. And we're like, hey, look, if all of our clients were like, you guys, like, I would have zero stress in my life. <laughs> 
But you are. I mean, and it's and and it's interesting to hear you say, you know, what you're passionate about and what you're great at is. And I don't, I don't ever, I can't think of anything in my mind that you don't just give full speed at everything you do, right? Just that focus. And it brings me back to something you said when you were doing the trials and, and panic sets in. And then when you fast forward and nervous, right? So what do you do in those moments of panic and nervous to bring yourself back to center? Uh, I, I can tell you that usually I don't ever panic. Uh, that first day uh, in OA trials, I panicked a little bit, but I quickly found out that panic doesn't help. So then I just got pissed uh, and, and got back to saying, no, okay, this yeah. is not acceptable. You can't, you can't pity yourself because you didn't do the way that you wanted to do the way that you expected to do in a time of, of nervousness and anxiety and, and pressure that you've never faced before. You have to, to rise up to that challenge and find a way around it. And that's, that's kind of how I am with, with anything that I have to face is you have to find a way through it or around it. One of the two. Pressure, anxiety, nerves, it's all going to be there. There's nothing that you can do about it, especially in a competition-like setting. You know, there's, uh, there's many things that, that I feel in business that I've been able to, to work around. Yes, I've got some pressure, but it's not based on just me being able to go out and despite all of the, the, the weather, all of these different things that, that can have an effect on something. No, if I sit down and I use my brain, then I can overcome anything. So that's the kind of the way that I approach you know, business and, and school and, and all that other kind of stuff. But in my sport and sports in general, you're competing against other people and you're competing against something else. It's not just yourself out there that, that you know you can trust yourself to do it every time. There's always factors trying to take you down. So what can I do to offset as many of those errors as possible? And it's about breaking it down and understanding it at a very, very basic level. What does it take for me to accomplish this task? And you do it one step at a time. So like with the athletes that I coach, we start literally from the feet up. It's foot position. And then it goes to hold point. Actually, it goes to your knees. And you have a little bit of bend in your knees, and then it's your hips. You kind of all do, the, you do these things all at one time, but as you're starting and you're developing an athlete, you have to tell them this every single time. Well, then you get your hold point, or you get your break point, and then you get your hold point, and then you set your eyes. But at the same time, during, during the course of all of this, you're telling yourself, what do I have to do in my move to be able to break the target? Well, as soon as I see the target come out, I need to start transitioning out in front of the target. I need to lock onto it. I need to use my eyes to see it clearly. I need to use my body to move to it. And everything happens so fast. I mean, we're, we're shooting the, the first target in less than three quarters of a second. And then when we're shooting our pairs, we're transitioning from the first target and pulling the trigger on the second target in less than half a second. So over the course of, you know, a quarter and a second, sorry, a second and a quarter, you're shooting two targets, all starting from the hip, transitioning to here. The wind's blowing 20 miles an hour. It doesn't change anything. We have to make those transitions, but it still starts from the feet up. So you walk yourself through those basics, and if you accomplish each individual task, you'll never miss. That's, man, and to do that in Beijing in the summer, God, see, I, 
Um, when I was in the Marine Corps, and my last two years were on embassy duty, Beijing was my second post. So I've experienced Beijing, Beijing in the summers. hot. And, and, and here's, here's the thing, too, that, that people don't realize. It's not just the heat. It's not just the humidity. But that pollution, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I try to explain to people the level of pollution that's there. So you're not even breathing good air, yeah. right? I mean, it's just all these things going against you, yet you step up and you prevail. It, what happens between there and 2012? That's a that's a roller coaster and a half right there. <laughs> uh, so after after Beijing in 08, I kind of ride that high, and I'm sitting high on the hog. I accomplished my dream. I reached it. I got a gold medal hung around my neck. I got to watch the American flag being raised on the podium, and so I, like I said, I rode that high. I shot really well for the next year. I won the next. I won a, the the world championships a year to the day. So August 16th of 2009. Uh, so a year to the day after the Olympic games, I won my second world championship at the time. And after that, I'm like, all right, you know, I just, just keep going, right? Just, just keep shooting. And I know I wanted to make the 2012 Olympic team and try to go win another gold medal. But I wasn't really thinking about that. I was just like, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing. Traveling around for the army. They're running me ragged. I'm doing PR events. I'm doing recruiting events. I'm, Getting on General's personal jets, as good as that made sound, I would get a phone call Thursday morning at 8.30 and I had to be on a, on a plane at 11 o'clock. And you know, it's just one thing after another. You know, leaving a, a, a wife at home that's, that's in, in school and doing, keeping care of the house, keeping care of a dog, all this other kind of stuff, it, it wears on you. You want to be home for a little bit. <laughs> and so in 2010, I shot well again. I only won one medal overseas, but I made every final. And thankfully, I won the um, the quota place one of the one of the two quota places for the U.S. to compete in the Olympics for for London at the 2010 World Championships in Munich, Germany. I finished fifth, and I was done at that point in time. Like, what do you mean I was by that? Mentally, tell, me, tell me. I was mentally done. Tell me more about that. that because me- mentally, like and the travel it wears on you. That. Yeah, and we were. My wife was pregnant with our first daughter. So she was due in uh, August of, like middle of August of 2010. Well, I'm in Germany the first week of August in 2010. <laughs> so like I'm, I, am, I am within a week or a week and a half of my daughter's due date and I'm competing at a world championships because I have to, because if I don't go as one of the top athletes in the U.S., I'm uh, realistically one of the best shots or the best shot that we had at winning a quota place for the, for the Olympic games. We have to have those. We want to go to the Olympics. So I'm not really mentally or physically there. I've been training a lot. I've been running myself ragged training, traveling, really never taking any breaks, waiting on my first daughter. And so thankfully we get through it. Like I said, I, I won the quota place at least. And then I go home and my daughter's late. So she comes a week at, a week late, and then my daughter's born, and three days later, I have to go and compete at a fall selection match. It's funny, these three days later things, it just keeps happening <laughs> now I'm thinking about it. Every time, it's like three days after I finish something that I have to go do something else. But, so I mean, I'm having to practice. And my wife has a daughter on, on whatever day it was. I can't remember what day of the week it was. I, I only go on numbers. That's how my life works. Because I know that I leave on this date of uh, of 
September or this this date in uh, in March. I, I leave on the 19th and I come back on the 27th. That's all that matters to me. I don't know days of the week. And so I'm there and I'm competing, but I'm while she's having the baby or right before she's having the baby, I'm practicing still. I have to go to the range and practice because I need to make the team for the next year. Uh, so she has the baby on one day. The next day I'm practicing again because, and I don't want to be, but I am because I need to be there. I so I go and shoot. And I go back to the hospital. I get her and we go back home. The next day I go shoot. The next day I leave and I'm gone for 10 days competing. And it just, it really took a toll on me. So the next year I made the world team, but I did terrible. I mean, awful. I don't think I made a single final. I didn't win any medals. Obviously I didn't make the, the final as the top six athletes at the end of the qualification. And so we're at a world cup in Marbor, Slovenia. And I shot the worst still to this day. I believe it's the worst I've ever shot in a world cup in, in any overseas match. And I call Rebecca and I say, I'm done. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. I, I really want to quit now. Cause I had to work. We'd, we'd been talking about it a little bit because I just wasn't having any fun at all. So being the person that Rebecca is, she's like, just, just wait, calm down, get home. Let's talk about it. And we'll, we'll pray about it. We'll see how it's going to go. Also, she's pregnant with our second daughter at this point in time. <laughs> so throw that on there. So I get back home. I can't remember what month this is. It's probably around June. And we're, we're talking more. Uh, we're trying to figure things out. And she's like, okay, you know what? Do you like doing this? Do you like shooting? And I'm like, well, yeah, I do like shooting. It's just I don't like all this travel. And I don't like being gone. I don't like, I like being home with, with you and with, with Bailey. That's my oldest daughter. And it's just, it's running me ragged. I'm, I'm tired. She's like, okay, well, take a little bit of a break. Let, let's pray about it. You need to pray about it and figure out what you want to do. So over the course of the next couple months, that's, that's what we did. We, we talked about it here and there, but we were praying about it a lot. And finally it hit me that I had never set another goal for myself after winning in Beijing. So I was going through aimlessly just trying to go to matches and shoot. Just doing the motions. Just going through the motions without actually knowing what I was doing them for or why I was trying to do them in the first place. So it, it kind of all hit me and I'm like, okay, well, this is going to take me a while to dig out of this <laughs> hole. But what are, the, what are the ways that I can do this? Yeah. First thing is, is I, I have the Pan American Games that I need to go to in, is in 2011. So Pan American Games... Um, in Guadalajara, Mexico. I can go there and I can win. And then I need to go to the fall selection match, which is the first Olympic selection match for London. And I need to win this. So that, those were my first two stepping stones. I go to Pan Am Games. I win. Uh, so I get my second gold there. And then I go to fall selection and I win there as well. I still am so... I doubt myself so much, though, on the on the world level, you know, and keep competing in World Cups and, and World Championships, and even, and even the Olympic level, because it's different athletes. On the Western Hemisphere, U.S. is by far the best athletes. There are there are definitely other good athletes, and there's more that's come on since then. But at that point in time, I mean, if we didn't make the final, we did awful, I and mean, we we way underperformed. So we should medal every time we go to the Pan Am Games. Back then, 
now it's getting even harder because there's just more athletes and better athletes that are coming up. We're still expected to, to win it or to, to at least medal, but it's difficult. So I at least accomplished that, but I still doubted myself on the world, world t- phase as it relates to the Italians or the, the Chinese or you know, all the European countries, really, and the Scandinavian countries. So I look at it as, okay, I'm going to take stepping stones for these World Cups. I'm going to, to just go out here and I'm going to compete as good as I can in the first World Cup. I'm going to just do my best. Whatever, whatever it takes, however it ends up, doesn't matter. I just need to get there and get my confidence back that I can do this. So I go to that first World Cup. I do okay. I don't make a final. The next one, I do a little bit better. And then the next one, I do a little bit better. That, that last one, if I remember correctly, was the, the test event in London. And I finished fourth, which was funny because I finished fourth in the test event in Beijing as well. And then whatever it was between being able to, to get there in that fourth spot, make the final again, be there in that fourth spot, I just had confidence. I'm like, I know that I can win now. And I'm going to prove to everybody else because I was being told, you're washed up. I was 23. And they're like, no, you're washed up. You know, you need to, you just, you should probably retire now because you're not doing well. And this is all after one bad year. It just wasn't the normal me. I want to interrupt here for a okay. second. Haters are going to hate, yeah. aren't they? Yep. If, um, if the folks that have been incredibly successful in life, like yourself, listen to what people said, you would have been a wash up. Mm-hmm. So this is, you know, what, what I always try to communicate with my daughter is like, stop caring about what other people think, right? Yep. You do you. Because if you listen to what everybody else is telling you, the second you believe it, they were right. Yep. Don't believe it. And, you know, and, and I want to go back to this travel exhaustion thing. I don't think most people have an understanding or concept of what that means is when you're constantly up. So prior to COVID, right, I threw 100,000 miles in the air, which is typical for a year. Minimum 50,000 a year, up to 100,000 traveling for Sotheby's, you know, going out here, interviewing agents all over the planet. um, And you just do it. And and it does. It just, man, the diet, the different bed. I mean, I can remember a time where I was traveling so much that I had to pick up the newspaper to remember what city I was in. Because you didn't even know, like you said, you know, it becomes day, you know, it becomes numbers of the calendar, not the days of the week. I mean, they all blend together, right? Absolutely. And then especially in what, you know, I do for a living, which is taking people out. I mean, so you're, you're eating you know, poor, poor me, right? Poor, poor first world problems, you know, steak dinners and scotches and all this stuff, but it wears you down. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and so like a friend of mine, I did my MBA with at TCU, Ryan Regal. And when he was president of Salad Master, I mean, we were going through our MBAs and he was traveling probably 20 to 22 days out of the month internationally. Yeah. See, that's, that's, that's the, the real, that's what hurts so much. Yeah. You know, You're breathing the air on the plane. 
this the, circulating the time change time the, the change time, and then the big thing is is yeah. like for me now I, when i was a teenager i can yeah. sleep on planes from from takeoff to landing yeah. now we'll go on 16 hour flights i cannot sleep on planes unless i am laying flat so the rare rare occasion yeah. that i'll get upgraded to business or that i'll pay for my own way to get upgraded to business because we fly vik tickets through united so we can't upgrade those. Oh no. We're not allowed to do anything. So we get put in the back of the bus. <laughs> and so you're sitting here cramped like this. For like, 16 hours. For 16 hours. Yeah. Like Seoul, Korea, 16 hours. I yeah. didn't move like this. And it was, it's just, it's miserable. And you do that over and over again. And when you're gone for 10 days, like you said, you're sleeping on a different bed. Mm-hmm. You know, seven to 10 days at a time is what my trips are. And... So you're flying in a cramped style on the plane. You're sharing a room with somebody else on a bed that's not yours. In China, that means that you're sleeping with a half an inch of foam on top of this table, basically. Right. And it hurts really bad. So, and then like in Azerbaijan, we went, we flew into Baku, and which it took us, I think it was a 30 hour or 31 hours uh, just to get to there. To there. Yeah. Between the connections we had to make in the U.S., again, cheap tickets, connections we had to make in the U.S., going into Europe, connecting, and then flying to Baku. And then once we got to Baku, we had a five-hour bus ride <laughs> over the mountains and through the mountains on a dirt road, mind you, not even paved. Were you just, no were you just covering your eyes because you didn't oh, even want to see? <laughs> it was awful. And like you're looking down, and it's it's in mountains, so it's sheer cliff. Like It's 1,000 it's feet down on one of the sides, and there's no guardrails. There, we're in this massive bus on a single lane. I'm not kidding. I'm not even making this up. Single yeah. lane dirt road through the mountains to get to this other city, Gabala, where, where the Olympic training center is for them. And that's where we're going because they didn't have enough airplanes to fly us over the mountains. That's how, the, that's how it's normally traversed. They don't really drive to those cities. They fly from Baku to Gabala. So you know, we're looking at 36 hours of traveling from when, when I left home or when I left on, at the airport, this wasn't even, mind you, not even being awake at home because we didn't leave until the evenings anyways. So all of that time, I think I was awake for like 51 hours God. without sleeping. And it's just, you are miserable. I may have gotten like one or two hours of sleep between the plane and the bus just because you get so exhausted, you just can't keep your eyes open anymore. Then you get there and you got to perform. Uh, we have two days. Yeah. Two days and then the match starts. So it takes us two days to travel there, over two days to travel there. And then we have two days of re, of one, basically a half day of recoup. And then you're, you got one day of, one day of practice. The next day is official practice and the next two days are match. And then you got to travel for three more days back home. Yeah. It, it hurts. And that's the worst one I've had, but still, and I average between 30 and 40 hours of travel time whenever I'd go somewhere. It's just. And that wears, <laughs> that wears down Does. And, it, and, and that's where, um, starting about a couple of years ago, I just started buying first class tickets and everybody was just like, Oh, look at you. And I was like, they were like, how can you afford to fly first class? I was like, how can I afford not to? Yeah. Because at least I was less disturbed up there. I could work on my computer. I could get a little bit of shut eye, but funny thing too was, is for about every two to three legs i'd end up picking up a referral yeah that would ultimately pay for the trip right i mean sit next to the third base coach for the yankees 
you know, just sitting there, casual conversation, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And then, oh, yeah, hey, great, blah, blah, blah. And so it just, just to, it, it became worth it to spend the money on things that would help me perform once I got yeah. there. Because by far, my no athlete or anything else, I mean, in the Marine Corps, swift, silent, deadly, and now at almost 50, slow, fat, and harmless. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but, you know, my job is to be, in entertaining mode when I get there yeah. is talking with people and it's just, and even for being the world's largest extrovert who loves to do nothing more than talk, I would get just to a point where I just, I just need 24 hours of not talking. And then, you know, naturally it's, it's, your family misses you. Yep. So then you land and then it's yeah. just like, Back blah, at it again. Blah, 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 blah. And you're just sitting there like, oh, but you, you know, but you're like, it's my family. So I've, I've got to engage. Mm -hmm. And it just, so there's a lot of that exhaustion that comes along. The thing you and I share is we outpunted our coverage with our wives. For sure. We married <laughs> well, right? Like every dude hates us. Like yep. you got the, you, you got the winning lottery ticket number right there. You won the mega millions. Is and so tell tell me about that. So tell me about everything that Rebecca has done to support you and what you're doing here. I mean, it's it's been pretty incredible just the amount of of backing that she's given me over the years. Yeah. And going into 2012, oh, my youngest daughter was born February 2012. So we had two kids under two, and we're trying to lead up to the Olympic Games. She's she's a stay at home mom at that point. She put her her college career on on back burner. So we wanted to have kids young. Uh, and nice thing is is that both of our kids are going to be out of the house by the time we're forty. <laughs> so you know it, it's it's tough at the beginning. By the way, yeah. being an empty nester, while I love my daughter, it's an awesome awesome <laughs> place to be. Well, we're already looking at each other now because they went to what we call Camp Grandma during the summer. Right, they were there for like two or three weeks. And once we got them back, I'm mean, like, it's awesome. We've got some detoxing to do, obviously. <laughs> um, but you know, we we love them, and I play with them all every day. I help them do their homework every day. I cook dinner for them every day. And with Rebecca in school, I literally do everything. Yeah. And and I mean, she yes, she does a lot still. Yeah. She. I can't. But you're, you're paying it back. I feel like I'm doing. Everything. I'm not. <laughs> I'm only doing like half of everything. But it just feels like I am because I'm trying to pick up everything that she can't do now yeah. you know, while she's you know, dedicated to her studies being in nursing school. So she, she basically committed 10 years of her life to raising our girls, of raising me. You know, we got married so young and being stupid and dealing with all the stuff that I would just say or do or just random stuff and all the time being gone. There's no way I could be the person that I am today if it wasn't for her. Really and truly, uh, she has helped me to change my life so vastly that I, I wouldn't have won the second Olympic medal if it wasn't for her. And I can, I would have probably been done with shooting at this point. If I wasn't, then I'd probably still been in the army and still doing the same old rigmarole that the other guys before me did this did. And I just didn't, I didn't want that. And she helped me see that too, that I can accomplish so much more than just being 
and mil- I love the military. I loved my job, but I knew that it was always a stepping stone for me to try to get to something else. I didn't know exactly what that something else was yet, but we were, and the other thing too, is we were limited in our, in my unit. I could only be enlisted and I can only up, only go up to E7. So as much issues as I have, or as many issues as I have with authority, I would never be in an authority position. <laughs> uh, I, I had offers to go to the academies, uh, the military academies, but I chose not to because I wanted to compete and shoot. And she's helped me push, push myself out of my comfort zone and help me achieve things I never thought possible. So yeah, huge, huge shout out to her. Oh man. And I mean, especially going back to where you were like, I'm, I'm just done. I'm not having fun at this. When you lose passion and purpose, it's really, especially for veterans, right? I mean, that's what we see happen with, you know, all these folks getting out, right? Mm -hmm. They just, it was easy to have a purpose when we were in the military, you know? I mean, there was always the greater goal of something greater than you and you didn't have time to be bored because if you were, then they were, ah, before you break something, let's go put you to do something, yep. right? Yep. And then you get out and you're just like, what do I, what do I go do? Like, what's my, what's my new purpose, right? So for you now, it was not necessarily repurposing, I guess if that's a word, uh, with what you were going to do. You just had to set a new, a new goal, right? A new, a new thing. And so to get you back on track, and it was those micro steps, right, is you know, most successful people I talk to go, yeah, on a macro level, you have to have a goal to get to. But it's really in the micro, yeah, right, is like you were talking about from the feet to the knees to the hips to the everything It's the micro steps that get you there, right? Mm-hmm. Like you said, I mean, it's only one way to eat an elephant, one bite at a time. Yep. And so... Now you've repurposed, right? You've, you're, you're back, you're focused and you're just had your youngest. It's February, 2012 and you're going to London. Walk us through London. So, I mean, we had the, we had Brenlin in February. My first world cup was probably March. Maybe I may have even actually made the Olympic team prior to, I can't remember the timing there on that one. Um, but it, it basically, we had a we had a match in March, match in April, match in May, and then the World Cup or the World uh, the Olympics was in July. Um, so obviously, I'm, I'm I'm trying to be home with with the girls. I'm um, I'm focused on spending a lot more time with my family when I'm actually home, and trying to to dedicate my time to them and attention to them, so that I can because I felt like I was missing that before. My first daughter, I missed her first steps. I missed her first words. I missed her first everything because I was gone. I didn't have a choice. I was told to be gone. But I also was so dedicated in trying to to shoot as much as I thought that I had to that I was I was gone even more than what I necessarily had to be now, outside of all those times of me being told where to go and what to do. So when I'm home, I'm home now in 2012. And when I'm on the range, I'm on the range. I, I still, at that point in time, didn't have a really good understanding of, of compartmentalization. I was just kind of just starting to, to, to get into that realm. But it allowed me to, to regain purpose again, 
you know, find happiness again as I enjoyed being home with my with my family. And as we get through all those World Cups and that that staging, getting through and getting get to London, and I get there, I remember I'm like, okay, we're we're walking into opening ceremonies, and I remember this this is why I wanted to go to the Olympics again. This is why I love being here because I'm with 600 other athletes that have I mean their life's purpose is to make the Olympic team and compete at a high level, as well as to represent the entire United States of America on a global stage where 6 billion people are watching. You know, people that love the NFL and I love football, eat your heart out because 300 million people watch the Super Bowl, but 6 billion people watch the Olympics. There's a big difference there. And it's a truly global event. And that's kind of what, what just, it sunk in so quickly. Now, I didn't say it back in 08, but I'll say it now. The best part about the Olympics is not winning a medal. The best part is actually walking into opening ceremony. I remember each time, and I've gotten a little bit closer to the flag each time I've walked in, but that first time I was walking down into the bird's nest in Beijing, and it's pitch black in the, in the, the little alleyway that we're walking into. You can see the American flag. It's just all black, but you can just see it there. And I think I'm 13 rows back. Everything's starting to get louder. You can hear them calling out the countries in front of us. You know, the athletes are jumping around. They're, they're getting excited. And we're all smiling. We're all laughing. We're all playing around, you know, joking with each other just because we're excited. And as we're getting, getting closer and closer to the edge, the end, end of that tunnel, everything is super bright outside, right? It's almost blinding because it's so bright with all the lights. And then the group, the country in front of us walks. And then as we're prepping and as they're telling us to okay walk 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 let's go we start going you can just feel the energy changing and then all of a sudden the flag hits the light and it just bursts into the brightest most bold red white and blue you've ever seen in your entire life and the crowd you can hear it it starts with the people that can that can first see the flag and then it just gets louder and louder and then they announce united states of america and then it's just deafening and then people are, are clapping, they're stomping their feet, they're, they're cheering, they're screaming, they're chanting USA, USA. And all the time, my eyes are on the flag as we're walking out. And it's just surreal to be in that moment, to be a member of that team, and to, to know that you're representing yourself, you're representing your country, and I was representing every person that was, that was in the United States military at the highest level of competition the world has ever seen. And that by far is the best thing you can ever experience as an Olympic athlete. And then you gold medaled. And then you win a medal. And that just makes Again. it better. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you uh, win, you, 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 you gold out again. Yep. Take me to 2016. So again, that's kind of another roller coaster ride. <laughs> From 2012 to 2016, um, 2014 or 2013, I shot well, but I actually had I was shooting a gun that was that wasn't right. We had a my top barrel was actually shooting six inches low all year. We didn't realize that when they sent it to me when I was shooting it. So back then, I didn't pattern my guns. I literally just took the gun out of the case and started shooting it. 
Like, this is what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And come to find out, I had had them take weight out because it was a new gun. It was a new version and it weighed more than my other one. So I don't like heavy guns. I like having ultimate control, which with a light gun, you have complete control. And so when they took the weights out, the weight out, something got twisted or something. And at about 20 yards, my gun was shooting six inches low, which is a big difference because I shoot really tight chokes as well. Now that's the constriction of the shot going out in the pattern. And so I shot that whole year. I shot pretty well considering, but I did was didn't win anything. Well, I went back that that later that year for a different event in Breda, Italy, and we took the gun. And I'm like, sometimes let's just let's test this. Maybe we need to change something. It's just not quite right. Mm-hmm. And they patterned it, and they're like, "Oh no, you can't leave here with this barrel. You're 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 not allowed to leave here with this barrel." And I'm like, "What's wrong?" And they showed me, and I'm like, "Maybe that's why I missed all <laughs> all, all second that targets this entire it. year." And so we changed, or they took that gun away, or that, that barrel away. So I had to go back to my old gun in 2014. And 2014, I didn't, I didn't win anything there either. And the old, the new, so this, I used to shoot a DT-10, a Beretta DT-10. And then I switched over to the Beretta DT-11. Newer version, new, new barrels, new, new engineering, new technology. Much, much better. Less recoil, better pattern, other things too. And so when I went back to the other gun, it just wasn't the same. Well, it took them a year to make me a new barrel. And they literally went through and did it all pretty much by hand. They lightened it out. I, they made that barrel the exact same as my DT-10 barrel, but with the new technology inside of it. But when I got that gun at the end of 2014 or beginning of 2015, I didn't lose for a year. I, I mean, I won everything I shot, minus one event, 2015, sorry. And I won world championships, I set world records, and went made the Olympic team without even having to, to qualify through selection matches because we had, at that selection ma- uh, process that for 2016, we had it to where if you did so well over the course of a year time, you could automatically qualify for the team. Well, I was, the, I was technically the first person to make the Olympic team for the United States in all sports. But they couldn't announce it yet because our selections weren't completed until we had um, one other event done. Whatever it was, they had to delay the announcement of me being on the Olympic team. But anyways, I made it and I had over a year to prepare. And then in 2016, I made every single final. I won a medal except for the Olympics. I didn't make that final. and, And with that gun, that was the only final that I didn't make. And it's the only final that I haven't made actually in four, five years now, almost six years. So I have finished every match that I've competed in overseas. I've made the top six since 2015 and except for the Olympic games. So it was funny and it was odd. I've, I've never had this experience before. So before probably three or four months before the, uh, the Rio Olympic games, there was something in my head that was telling me, be prepared not to win this games just understand that it that it is that it's going to happen or that it could happen that you don't win and i'm sitting here telling myself it's like where in the world is this coming from I, this is this is not me i don't think like this i know how to overcome those thought processes so i went through you know several different things i even called the the guy that I, the sports psychologist that i used to work with when i was younger like what is going on with me right now and he, we worked on on several different things. Try to figure out, okay, 
you know what to say to yourself. So tell yourself that, yes, I, I am going to go there. I am going to win a gold medal. Now, I can accomplish all of these things. But still, it was in the back of my head that you weren't going to win this one. And it was annoying to me. I, I can't tell you how frustrating it was for me to have that voice in the back of my head telling me that it's not going to be your time. So, and again, I'm competing really well. I'm shooting really well before I leave. I mean, really, really well. And then about a week prior, I'm not even thinking about not shooting good, uh, not winning the, the games. I'm nervous about going, of course, but then about a week prior, I don't, I'm not shooting good at all. And I just, it's like I'm completely lost and can't find it. I work through the process. I work through all kinds of different stuff, but just isn't right. And then I'm getting frustrated at little things. Well, I get down to, to Rio, and if something could go wrong for me, it was going wrong down there. I mean, I was getting knocked by the referees, and I never get counted. or get, get no, None of the referees really even talk to me outside of saying, hey, Vincent, how are you? Yeah, you're good, like always. I was getting taped on stuff because we're at the Olympics, we're only allowed to have so many logos. And you're not allowed to have anything that's compete, a competing brand except or with with the IOC sponsors. So like Nike, I can't wear a Nike shoe unless, it, but it can only, I can wear a Nike shoe or whatever shoe I want, but it can't say Nike on it anywhere. It can have one logo, but it can't say Nike on it. And then my glasses, they say Pila on both sides and on the front. Well, you can't have anything on your front or on your back. So they have to tape the sides and they tape the front as well because they're not allowing me to tape, they're not allowing me to do that. I get there, they changed the rule like two months prior that we can't wear electronic earplugs anymore. Well, I had taken six months and I never saw this come through. I had taken six months getting used to using electronic hearing protection because it allowed me to to hear a little bit better and still be able to block the, the gun noise. So I had to take the batteries out of that. And then I had to tape my gun. They wouldn't let me, I mean, the equipment that I'm using I had to tape logos on that. I had to put tape on the butt pad even because they're like, oh no, we could potentially see this one day. They went nuts on me and they didn't do it for some of the other athletes, which was really frustrating. I had tape on my hat. I had tape on my, sh- my uh, shoes. I tape on my pants because it was raining on me. I was the only round that it got rained on and it wind and it was blowing right in my face. So it was hitting my glasses. So I tried to shoot with my glasses on, couldn't see because it was like this, took my glasses off. It was blowing 15 to 20 miles an hour. So the wind, and it was misting. It wasn't heavy rain, so it wouldn't fall straight down. The mist was then blowing in my eyes, and I couldn't keep my eyes open. So it's like literally everything could go wrong went wrong, and I let it go wrong. That was the big thing that I realized afterwards after I digested it for months. What happened to me there that I wasn't able to overcome all of those things that got in my way or that were trying to get in my way? And it allowed, it, taking those several months afterwards, and I actually, I shot one more match after the Olympic Games, and I got a silver medal. Uh, shot really, really well, and finished silver. To the guy that, uh, no, that was the year prior. I can't remember how I finished on that one, but <laughs> I shot one more match after that. And then I said, you know what, I'm taking off next year from international competition. I'm just going to stop. And take a break for a little while, because n- nothing counts anyways. We don't have any selection matches, or we don't have any quota places that are available for th- the Olympic Games in 2020. So I'm just going to shoot later in the year in domestic competitions only. So I took seven months off after Rio. Then after that last match afterwards. 
I didn't shoot hardly at all until I got my new gun in May of, of 2017. And when I picked it up again, I had digested all this. I figured out you can't let the little things bother you. Things are going to go wrong, but you have to have fun. You have to enjoy yourself and just take these things as it comes and learn how to work around it. You know, overcome these things and just laugh at it. Seriously, just laugh at it. You can't do anything about it anyways. Yeah. If it's going to happen. So enjoy yourself, laugh at it, have fun, and just go out and do what you need to do. So once I got that gun, the new one, it's, it's called a DT-11 Black. It's still Beretta. It's got a carbon fiber rib on, rib on it. And so it makes it lighter, right? Uh, I like light guns. Problem is, is that I went from a 28-inch barrel to a 30-inch barrel. And that was, it's two inches, you know, gaining two inches. If you ask any guy, you'll never get any issues because of that. (laughs) But in reality, it's a big difference in shooting. Yeah. Especially on a skeet field where you have angles, where it's, we're all about angles and it's really fast. So you have to be able to transition really quickly. Well, they, my barrel that I'm shooting now is the same weight as my 28 inch barrel because of the carbon fiber rib. And once I got that gun and I had the extra two inches of sight, picture it drastically changed the way i was able to to attack targets see targets and shoot targets and i told myself you know i made the team for 2018 said i'm going to go have fun for the first time in my career i was laughing and smiling on the range i was talking to people i'm a very serious person when it gets down to to go time and i still when i'm on the range when as soon as i step on station one it's over i don't care about anybody else yeah and I'm going to do my own thing all the way through the end of that round. So 30 minutes long, each round, I'm in my own zone. Not, not paying attention to anything else. But I'm having fun still. And once I come off, used to, I was 30 minutes before the round, all the way during the round, and 30 minutes afterwards before anybody could even talk to me. Now, uh, it's, I can almost do it from station to station. I can go in and out because it's getting easier the more experience that, that I have. Compartmentalizing exactly. that compartmentalizing. Exactly. That wisdom that, that you've developed. That compartmentalization that I talked about before. Yeah. Over the course of that seven months, that's what I worked on. I actually learned for the first time ever how to be a, a man, how to be a husband, how to be a father, how to be a provider, a caretaker, and how to do all of these things well and not put it all on somebody else. So when I started shooting again, I realized this guy that I am when I'm shooting as good as he is, he is terrible at being a family man. Terrible because he's selfish. And whenever I was shooting my best through 2015, through basically through all of my life through 2015, I was this guy almost 100% of the time. I changed. I went in and out and it was being the husband and father sometimes. But when I was this guy and I was shooting good, he went with me everywhere. And he was selfish. And it's the only person that he cared about. So understanding that this is not the person that I need to be at all. And I need to figure out how to take some of the happiness that I'm experiencing over, over here in this compartment, compartment with my family and inject some of that over here too. That it's going to make me a better person. It's going to make me a better athlete. And that's exactly what happened. And I go into 2018. I won every World Cup and World Championship that I compete in. I set the world record. And I... I Going into 2019, I, I win everything again there as well. Two World Cups. It's all I competed at last year. And so I, mean, I think I get one silver medal 
last year. That's the, that's the lowest thing that I've gotten so far since I've come back in 2017 on international stage is a silver. And it's one. So I know that the happiness that I, that I get to have here, that when it gets used over here as well, makes me the, the, the ultimate athlete. Because I can do what I love and love what I do truly for the first time in my life. And it just opens up new doors for me. And then you qualify for 2020 Olympics and yep. boom, pandemic. And then COVID gets <laughs> dropped on my face. Yes. Yeah, you got to love that. Oh, man. So would you say that this newfound happiness that you've got in 2017 and that compartmentalizing and being in this better place helped you to better probably deal with COVID? Because I imagine for a lot of athletes of all this just constant grind, training, yep. training, and then it's like, <gasps> yep, pregnant it's, pause. Exactly. Right? And so like one of my students, for instance, uh, she made the Olympic team with me. I've been working with her almost since I moved out here. So she's, she's 19 now. She was 18 when she made the Olympic team. And she is so driven and so motivated to, to go to the Olympics and to win. She shoots every single day. And I mean, I have never, ever met a more motivated, dedicated individual in my entire life in anything. She is a straight A student. She's at UTA right now in, in aeronautical engineering. She just started. She's already at the top of her class. And, I, and what she does on everything that she, she assigns herself self to, she is the best. So it's pretty incredible what she can do. But when this all happened, she was lost at the beginning of it because she had no idea. She's like, what do I do now? Meanwhile, I'm over here. I'm like, well, I was going to take off next year anyway. So <laughs> I'm just not going to shoot this year. I can't shoot anyways. So like I, I mean, I've shot maybe a case of shells in the last five months. And people are looking at me they're like, you're crazy. You're, 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 you're going against what you preach. Because I tell them like, look, right now, nobody else is practicing. If you're yeah. practicing right now, you're making leaps and bounds over everybody else that's not. Yeah. The problem is, is that I did that for over a decade. And I realize now that I'm in a place of understanding with, with everything that I've done in this sport that the best possible thing that I could have done leading up to next year and preparing myself for all the travel that's going to happen next year is to take time off now. Because I was already getting tired of traveling again at the beginning of this year. Yeah. I was on that fine line. My wife and I have talked about this a lot. And so has our national team coach and I like it's, it actually may not have been a bad thing that COVID happened for me this year because I was prepared to go and compete at the Olympics. And I, and I know that I could have done well and I probably could have won it as well. However, there's a difference between when I know that I'm going to win and when I know that I can win. And all through last year, I knew that I was going to win every single thing that I, that I stepped out there and shot. I only lost last year. Because the guy shot a world record score, a perfect score. Like you can't beat perfect. Right. And I missed one of my last 10 targets when a little puff of wind blew the target up and I just didn't move up. Yeah. So, I mean, it wasn't that I wasn't shooting really well. I shot a 59 out of 60 in my final, but he shot a 60 out of 60. The only time he's ever done it. <laughs> and, and I think he's done it once. Actually, I think he did it again afterwards because he shot really, really well. But yeah. it's not somebody that typically will go out and shoot perfect scores you know, in those high level pressure situations, but he did. And it was awesome to watch. He shot amazing. He's a, he's a friend of mine too. He's a really good guy. He's a Luigi Lode from, from Italy. Super awesome guy. He's hilarious. But 
I wasn't expecting him to not miss one target. I mean, come on, <laughs> give me one. But you know, at the same time, like I said, it's it, this has given me an opportunity to take time off again. Yeah. I at, at the beginning of this year, through the first selection match, I was getting to a point where it was just so much pressure that because I put it on myself. I mean, it's not from anybody else; it's yeah. from me putting it on myself to get there and win at the selection match to make the Olympic team. Because I know my livelihood depends on me making teams and me doing well overseas. Uh, I got to keep my sponsors happy. I can't win any money when I win matches. So the way that I live is through lessons or through sponsors. And so I know that I have to do well. And I get there and I shoot good, really good the first day. And then I have a terrible, terrible second day. And this is at the selection match this year. I think I've got off topic from what I was talking about earlier. But now we're talking on this. I wasn't happy anymore. Again, like I've just been talking about, that happiness is what's fueled me. It's what motivated me. It's what helped me to win everything. Yeah. And I wasn't happy at the beginning of this year when I was competing. So, and I wasn't as happy at practice either. And it's the first time I've experienced that since 2016. I've had three years where I've been, I've been happy to go out to the range every day in practice. I've been happy to travel. I've, I've actually been excited about it. Traveling overseas and shooting and having fun and competing with those guys. But... At that selection match, shoot really good the first day, have a, a good, uh, a better lead. I only had a small lead going into to this final Olympic selection match because everybody shot just crazy scores at the first selection match last fall. And second day comes in, and I shoot a 20 on my first round. So I shot a 75 straight the first day. Didn't miss target. Next day, I missed five, right? I go from being ahead by a several to being behind now. Shoot a 24 my next round, so I shoot a 119 out of 125. That's not good for me at all. Yeah. Thankfully, everybody else missed targets too, so that helped. And then that day, I start feeling bad. I start feeling sick. And by the next morning, I can barely move because I, I am so sick. I mean, I'm, I, it's awful. I can't eat. I can't, it's hard, it hurts to walk. It hurts to just move. And so I don't know, I don't know what's going on with me. Like, I don't know if I have the flu at the, I mean, this was just when COVID was kind of really started coming around. I'm like, I don't think I have that. I mean, that's just at yeah. that time I'm like, nah, no, I mean, there's hardly anybody that has that. Surely it's not that. Yeah. And so that day, that third day of competition, it's a really important day. That's kind of moving day for us. I've so little energy that I have to carry a chair with me to sit behind each station after I shoot. Wow. I, I shoot the stations. I almost fall off of every station because I, I don't have the energy to shoot to pull myself up. And I walk back behind it. I sit back in the chair. I just I prop the gun up on the edge of the chair, and I just do like this, and I close my eyes. And I just sit there until and I'm listening. I just can't, I'm so tired, I can't keep my eyes open. So as soon as I, as I hear the, the last person go, and I have a whole routine, and just the routine's just gone. As soon as I hear the last person, get, I, I get up, carry my chair over, I go and set it behind the next station, go shoot the next station, walk back and sit sit in the chair again. I do this for three rounds that third day. And I think I only missed one target. I'm like, <laughs> I have no idea how I did this. None. I mean, I, between each round, yeah. I'm going back. And I'm laying in a camper that my student, the one that made the team, she, her dad had rented. I'm laying in the camper on the bed in the back, sleeping. Because I I, I just can't do anything. Yeah. 
And so I'm drinking as much water as I can, trying to flush my system, drinking electrolytes, try, just forcing food down me, as little food as I can get, but getting something in. And one of the, one of the guys there is a doctor. He ends up calling me in a, a Z-Pack. My mom goes and picks it up for me. And because my dad's a coach, he coaches other kids and she was out there with him. So she ran and grabbed that, brought it back to me. And we finish out the day. I go back home, ate dinner. I don't remember what we ate. I went to sleep. Woke up the next day, awful, still again. I have no idea what's going on with me at this point. And so I'm taking the Z-Pack and, the, and they, they recommend like, look, you're going to take the first two days, the first night of the Z-Pack. We are going to kick this thing, whatever it is, we're going to do as much as we can with it. And then the next day, you're going to take a double dose as well. So I'm like, I am pumping a lot <laughs> of antibiotics <laughs> in my system right now. But I have them carrying that chair between every single, both times. And I think I missed one target again that next day. Wow. And we're getting into the final, have a little bit more energy because I'm forcing food, forcing electrolytes, forcing water. I feel a little bit better, but I'm still walking around. But I don't have to close my eyes and I want to sit in the chair. I can still watch, thankfully. And I get into the final and I just start cruising in the final. And I'm shooting really, really well. I think I shot a 57 out of 60. Is it 56 or 57 out of 60? And I missed like three targets on my last 15 shots. But the next closest person to me was a 52 out of oh, 60. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I, I, was, wow. I was so far ahead of everybody at that point in time that you know, I had it in the bag. I think I won by 11 or more. So, looking at it, I'm like, okay, you put all of this stress on yourself probably got sick because you were in a, in a compromised position being so stressed and you ended up winning by 11, <laughs> like, or I think it may have even been 14 crap. I can't even remember now, but it was a lot of targets. That's a lot yeah. for, for our sport. Like, so you put yourself through all of this just to, to, to get to the outcome that you wanted to. And even further, I was just hoping to win by 10. So, I mean, I exceeded my expectations and I started slowly feeling a little bit better uh, after the, in the days afterwards. I think it was just you know, stress-induced. I got sick with something else, and I don't know what it is. But you know, I was thankful for that. And by the time I got back home, I was already starting to feel a little bit better about going and shooting and practicing. And I'm like, all right. The problem was is that we went from, from there. We went, I met my wife and kids in Colorado. We went skiing for a week. The day we got home, that's when they shut everything down for COVID. And I'm like, <laughs> well, I guess there goes me... Uh, me getting excited about going to practicing again in the Olympics. I'm like, surely they're still going to have the Olympics. This is just going to go away, right? Yeah. Little did we know that it, this was going to be as, as serious as it was, or as it is, and well, everything that it's entailed. But it's changed my life a lot. You know, we've had, uh, I've had sponsors that have, you know, because I'm not competing this year, for the last half of the year, they cut back you know, what they were, what the contracts were supposed to be. And I mean, I can't argue with them. Uh, I've did everything that I could at the beginning of the year, but yeah. I'm not providing them a service now. And I'm, I'm a service-based employee. I'm a, I'm a contractor for them. So I get it. And that's kind of, I think, what everybody else has, has had to deal with too. Well, maybe not you. I mean, you're selling houses like hotcakes right now. But, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. suck right now. I'll tell you that right now. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good segue. So- Anytime you're buying and selling real estate, whether it's here or Alabama or anywhere else, mm-hmm. who do you call first? I mean, it's, I have to call you, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, we've, we've always, ever since yeah. we looked at selling our first house out here in Texas, yeah. 
we went with a different company before. It was a friend. Yeah. It, was, it was actually a friend's daughter. I just didn't know it was going to go that way. We sat on the market for like nine months. We never even had a showing. And then we wait for a few more months. And then Rebecca does a lot of research. She's like, all right, I think that this group that's called the SPAN group would be a good one for us to look at because I hear a lot of positive things from them. Excuse me. So let's let, uh, let's go and meet them. I'm like, well, you're going to have to because I can't. Now, I'm, I'm off doing something, of course. Yeah. And so she goes and she meets with Laura. She's like, all right, this is where we're going to go. Six days later after we started the uh, – well, pro, however long it takes us to get everything ready once yeah. we sign the contract with you guys. Once we list this thing on the market, we had it sold in six days. So nine months of nothing to six days, we have like five or six showings and it's sold. It's just like, all right, well, we weren't quite prepared for this to happen that fast. <laughs> now what do we do? We had no house. To, we hadn't even looked at houses yet. We weren't anticipated for that to happen. So we ended up having to move into an apartment. And then we're like, okay, we need to look at houses. So we're looking. We do a lot of research on our own. And we, we, we end up calling you guys a few months later. Like, all right, I think we know what we're going to do. So we put an offer on a house. It actually gets accepted. And then we we go into a friend's house and the house right across the street from them, which is in the neighborhood that we've always wanted to be in. We just, nothing ever goes for sale in there. There's a house there. And it's the day after we signed the contract on this other house. We're like, oh crap. Like, well, we're going to have to look at it because it's in the neighborhood. So we went and looked at the next day and we're like, okay, we cannot like this house. <laughs> we get in the house and we're like, okay, well, we love this house. <laughs> so now what are we going to do? So we call you guys and I'm like, uh, Jeremy, or maybe actually, maybe it was Rebecca or maybe it was Laura that I called. Rebecca was like, no, you're making this phone call, not me. So I call them, one of you two, I can't remember who it was the first phone call. I'm like, all right, we, we need to see about getting out of this next contract because yeah. we've just, we found the perfect house it's where we want to be. Yeah. I like it's super close to the girl's school. It's close to our friends. It's in an awesome neighborhood. Let's make this happen. And thankfully, you guys made it happen. Uh, I saw a lot of emails coming from Laura, and, and like she was able to it worked work her magic, and it, you know, it got us out of that contract into the new house. And then fast forward two more years, now our daughter's going to a different school, <laughs> and our other daughter's looking going to another school. And we love the house, but there's it's an older house. We're encountering some different things we were just not ready for. Yeah, we do some renovations on the house, and we're thinking about listing it. We're looking at listing it. And uh, we're, oh, I get a, a knock on the door and this lady comes and she's like, hey, if you ever want to sell your house, I want to buy it. I'm like, oh, okay. Your timing couldn't be better. <laughs> like, well, we're, okay, do you want to come look at it? Sure, my best friend used to live here, so I know what it looks like, but uh, have you done anything different with it? Like, well, actually, yeah, we have. <laughs> so we came here to show it around and she's like, okay, well, we're going we're gonna to buy this house from you, but we're not going to use real estate agents. I'm like, well, what the heck is up with this? I'm like, okay. So I called you and I'm like, oh, look, this is what they're offering us. And you're like, take Dude, it, take that. Like you have to take this, like, take out a pen yeah. and sign that thing right now. Yeah. So, I mean, like, obviously we, we've, we've, we've done some stuff with you guys before. Yeah. I mean, I've shot with you. We've done Caltown Warriors with you. Yeah. I believe in you. I trust you. And that that's, there's not many people out there that I say that about. Truly. There's not, there's less than a handful of people. I appreciate that. I actually that. say that I, that I oh, trust. Man. If I need something. And so you guys were kind enough to, even though you're friends, we, we were looking at listing with you guys in the first place. You were say, look, dude, that's just too good of an offer. You have to take that. You, you, yeah. Like, so don't even blink. You got to jump all over that. We did. But, you know, the thing is, is that we knew we were going to have somewhere to move. So obviously we were like, okay, well, 
if we're doing this house, you guys are going to have to find us another house. <laughs> so we start looking all over the place. You guys are looking at places and, and we, we all kind of something draw catches our out in Walsh and you know, really quickly, you guys have us a contract on it and that's where we're at now. And we couldn't be happier. Man, I tell you, and not only are you, you're like our favorite clients because y'all are so easy to work with, but y'all get bored like every two years, <laughs> yeah. and, and which is great. We're, you know, man, yep. let me tell you, I'm able to pay for Maggie's college <laughs> because of you moving every two years, right? Right. And then you had your house uh, in uh, Phoenix City. Yeah. Yep. So my old, the house that we had when I was in the military, uh, yeah. stationed at Fort Benning, Georgia. So Phoenix City, Alabama, it's kind of like a sister city with Columbus, yeah. which is right next to Fort Benning. Um, we got to the point where we knew we wanted to sell, but I'm like, all right, let me just ask Jeremy if he yeah. knows anybody or can hook me up with somebody there. And sure enough, I'm like, Hey, we want to sell this house. You hooked us up with a person there, uh, just outside of Phoenix city. And she walked, I mean, she was great to work with too. She was really good. And knowing that I wasn't going to be there, she went and checked on the house all the time, making sure that the different stuff we were doing, the renovations to get, to get it ready to sell. Cause we had it rented for six or seven years. Yeah. And obviously the rental company, we won't ever use them again. And we don't have a house there anymore, but if we did, we would not be using them. They let the house go into disrepair pretty bad. Yeah. But she was willing to go through there. I mean, almost on like a, an other, every other day basis to check and see what those workers were doing. And she would tell me if something was looking right, if something wasn't looking right. And we got it done. And she had the thing sold in like two days. I think we had six or seven offers on it. They were competing offers, just getting higher and higher. And she still, I was like, look, yeah. this is really what I want to get out of it. She's like, okay, we're going to list it for this and it's going to sell for higher than what you, what you asked. And it did. It went for like 8,000 more than what we had it listed for. Wow. I'm like, yes, ma'am. Sold. If we ever have a house there, we're using you again too. <laughs> and it's because you guys had a great recommendation. Man. Um, so that's where, you know, what warms my heart is I love helping clients. And it's that thing you said, trust, right? Trust is the currency of business, not money. Yep. And I love being able to do that for folks. But when you're geographically locked because you can't be everything to everyone everywhere, how could we take that model, which was, hey, let's start traveling. Let's start picking up the phone. Let's start interviewing agents everywhere using cultural index to see how they process information. So that way, just like you, when somebody wants to buy or sell real estate anywhere on the planet, they can come to us and we're going to get them put with the right person. And then that allows us to feel like we've expanded our footprint of driving value and happiness for so many more people out there. We've been number one in Sotheby's here in the Metroplex two years in a row for the most outgoing referrals. You know, and anybody can call and do a referral, you know, hey, will you blah, 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 blah. But it, that takes the value away from it, you know, and it, it doesn't do any good if it doesn't close. And yeah. it's not going to close if the person's not representing them the way they should be representing them. And so, man, thanks for the big, you know, shout out on that one. That one's, that one's huge because we love doing it. We love absolutely helping people. And, um, and man, I, I'm going to ask you one last question. All right. All right. I probably know the answer to this already because of, you know, our conversation here. If you could go back to 18-year-old self, what would you tell 18-year-old self, knowing what you know today? Uh, the first thing that I would say is 
the first thing you need to focus on each and every day, every single day, is being a good husband to your wife, being a good father to your kids, and living and doing the right things in a godly way. And it's not telling people that you're doing it that way, but do it for yourself. Stay true to yourself. And the shooting comes with it. I probably wouldn't even mention anything when it came to shooting because success is great, but having a loving family that you can count on and come home to every single day, that is by far the biggest blessing that I've ever had. So I wish that I would have not taken it as lightly as I did when I was young. I wish that I could have, I wish that I could tell you right now that I've never had any issues, that I've never had any struggles with anything and that, that Rebecca and I have had a, had an awesome marriage and that I've been a great dad every single day of my life, but it's just not true. We all have struggles and I'm no different, but I wish that I could go back and tell myself and give myself some direction so that I could be just better. I, I truly want to be better each and every day. And I wish that I could have the time back to, to go back and be the man that I am now then so that I could just be that much better now. So the name of this podcast is Winning Strategies Playbook. And man, you <laughs> are, at, I mean, I, you might got a new sponsor here. I'm just going to put up Vincent Hancock and go Winning Strategies Playbook right here. That's like, <laughs> just look at his pretty face and that does it. So how about a um, somebody wants to get lessons or um, want to follow you on social media, uh, want to get in touch with you. What, how do we, how do we connect them with you? So I'm usually pretty active on social media, uh, because of COVID this year and not being at the range. A lot of my stuff is, is centered around being out on the range and, and coaching or shooting or something like that. Uh, I haven't been as active lately, but that's going to pick right back up again as soon as I start shooting, but I'm still there. Still checking my, checking my DMS and all that, all that kind of stuff. So on Instagram and Facebook, uh, it's just, if you type in Vincent Hancock, I should be the first one that pops up, but it's at Vincent underscore Hancock on Instagram. And I've got two pages on Facebook. It's just Vincent Hancock. And then the other one is Vincent, fan, Vincent Hancock fan page. So fan page. Are, it's it, my wife made it way back when, <laughs> and that's where the majority of my stuff goes to publicly. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it, outside of that, it, as far as lessons go yeah. and I, I coach kids or people from first time they've ever shot a gun to Olympic level athletes. Uh, I've got a, a, another lesson coming up next weekend that's uh, with a 12-year-old kid and he's just now getting started. And it's fun to be able to, to be in at that beginning process because you can kind of see them, watch them and develop. Uh, but it, to be able to get in contact with me there, you can either shoot me a, a DM on social media or you can email me at my just my personal email, vincenthancock13 at gmail.com. And you got a YouTube channel too, right? Yeah, I do. It's I just started it a little bit okay. ago. I haven't posted a ton to it, but I've got some content that I need to 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 get on there, and it's coming. I just don't know exactly when I'm going to post it yet because it's yeah. on another site right now. So I've got to figure out where I'm taking it from that site or when I'm taking it from that site and putting it on there. But I'm going to try to start posting a lot of the stuff that I do on social on like my social media as far as Instagram as my main platform of my teaching things onto the the youtube channel is just to kind of go a little bit more in depth with it and it should just be at vincent hancock as well yeah and we're gonna we're gonna have you on our website so our website is my and um might be wondering why not the span group because people can spell span wrong in True. so many different ways they've never find yep. it but my experienced realtor.com and we're gonna have a section there for our podcasts and our guests and 
how to get in contact and whatnot. And uh, man, I I appreciate you spending the time to come out here and tell me this is tell us just the audience this is an incredible story, you know, of your journey to. Man, it's just <laughs> when you hear a journey like yours, you, you, I sit back and go, God, what have I done? and you know the thing is is that i've i love doing what i do yeah and that's what i tell every person that i meet uh, talking to to kids at schools or going to shooting ranges and talking to kids i I mean i love working with kids that's my passion i love just talking to kids they're so energetic they have so much potential that i tell them no matter what you choose just love what you do and do what you love and put as much effort into it as you possibly can is it doesn't matter if you have gold medals. It doesn't matter if you make a million dollars. It matters if you're having fun and enjoying yourself. You get so much more happiness out of that than anything else could ever buy you. Money could ever buy you or medals could ever get you into places or do anything for you. Happiness is where it truly is. Sound advice. And selfishly speaking, when you're Jeremy Spann and you got to go shoot with some folks, you call your buddy Vincent and be like, hey. <laughs> and then after a while, they're like, this guy's really good. And he's like, well, he's kind of gotten a couple of medals in his pocket. As a matter of fact, there was one time we were doing it and they were like, really gold medals? And you were like, yeah, please. And you pull, it, you pull out the gold medals and they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, I brought a ringer. Yeah. And Jer- Jeremy just likes to win. That's all. That's it. That's it. You know, it's about the win. And thanks again, Vincent. And thank you for giving us your time. I appreciate you having me, man. Thank you for tuning in to Winning Strategies Playbook. To get more information, follow our website, myexperiencerealtor.com. Download your episodes through your favorite podcast downloadings. Follow us on social media. Hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And if you're ever looking to buy or sell real estate anywhere on the global planet, please go to our website, myexperiencerealtor.com fill out the sheet and we will make sure that you get connected with someone that's going to represent your interests the way you want them represented.